0: Uh, When I was in high school, I had a a set of grandparents that had a timeshare in Cancun, Mexico. And somehow I only leveraged that into one vacation um, with them. But the summer that we went down there, uh, we discovered that so long as you stayed inside the resort area there, everything was in English. You didn't have to be able to speak any Spanish in order to know what was going on or, or to be able to function kind of normally. I don't speak any Spanish Uh, I took French in high school, and so um, I don't have any idea uh, how to do anything beyond count to ten. In fact, if you ask me what eleven is, I can't even tell you. And so um, we spent a day doing a day trip to a place called Shell Ha. It's like a few-hour bus ride away from the Cancun Resort area. And what it is is it's this uh, spot where a freshwater river runs into the ocean, uh, and you get what's called brackish water there. It's like half salt water, half fresh water. And because of that, these freshwater fish come down, and there's a ton of space, and so they can grow to be enormous. But you also get saltwater fish who swim into the river quite a ways, Uh, and so you get very large just fish from out in the sea uh, that end up in this little area. And so here at this place in Mexico, you can snorkel in there, and the water's crystal clear, and... S- the size of what's underneath you is staggering. And so I remember being in there, and I'm relatively certain I saw a shark, which ended my time in the water. And so I swam over uh, to where you climb out, and I got out and I gave my stuff back. And I saw that just a little ways away there were shower heads where you could just rinse yourself off. And so I went over to those, uh, fully expecting them to just function like any. Uh, shower knobs do here in America. There's an H on one side. There's a C on the other. And if you want hot or cold water, you go toward the corresponding correct letter. Well, does anybody know what the word for hot is in Spanish? <laughs> Caliente. That starts with a C. On the, on the other side of their little knobs, uh, they use the word for chilled or uh, icy, freezing, which is H-E-L-A-D-O. I have no idea how to say that, but it starts with an H. And so when you you are in Mexico and you go to use the hot and cold, it's not telling you hot and cold. I mean, it's telling you hot and cold, but it's telling you caliente and whatever the other word is. And so I walk over to this thing and I flip it toward H because that's what I would do here in America. And ice cold water comes out of this thing onto me. And so I kind of jump backwards, and I look at the person next to me who's just enjoying like a luxurious, warm experience while they clean themselves off. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is going on? This is a simple thing. You run the hot water to the H side. You run the cold water to the C side. Someone is incompetent. That's what I'm thinking to myself. They don't know how to run the pipes here. Somebody has made a mistake. Reality is that no one made a mistake. It's that my expectation was wrong. I expected H to be hot and C to be cold. What I found out was that C was hot and H was cold. My frustration wasn't due to anybody else's mistake. It was due to my own wrong expectation. That's how most of life and disappointment functions. You have an expectation. You walk into that arena of life or season of life and the expectation goes unmet and you end up frustrated. Most of our relational breakdowns happen as a result of this, whether it be in a marriage or parenting with your children or it could be in a school or a work relationship, whatever the case might be. Someone fails to meet your expectation, and you get frustrated. In fact, most of the time when someone fails to meet your expectation, you think what I think in Mexico, which was someone doesn't know how to function. like They don't know what they're doing. Whoever is in charge or in control or whoever is wronging me just doesn't understand the right way that they're supposed to be doing things. Oftentimes in life, when we can find no one to pin uh, that sort of blame on, we can't find anyone to point the finger at, we point it at God. I'm disappointed. My picture of how this area of life was supposed to function isn't coming to fruition. I thought I would be married by now and I'm not. I thought I would get a promotion by now, but I haven't. I thought my children would behave a certain way, but they don't. I thought my marriage would function a certain way, but it doesn't. I thought my future would look a particular way, and it doesn't. And when we can't find the right person to blame for that, we look at God and we say, you don't know what you're doing. This isn't how this was supposed to work. You have let me down. My expectation has gone unmet. Or... We make the expectation heavier on God. And we say, well, okay, here's where I am in life, and I'm disappointed, and I'm frustrated, but if you're actually God, then you'll act this particular way and make it right. Oftentimes, those are about things that God has not promised us at all. God does make certain promises for the life of a believer, but oftentimes we lay upon Him expectations of things that He has not ever promised us. They're things that we desire which can be good things, but they're in no way something that he has promised to give us or to provide for us. We're going to look at what do we do in those moments. Over the last couple of months, we've talked about worship and what is worship. Worship, as Brian defined it a few months ago, which I think is good, an an illustrative definition for us. He said that worship is responding to God for who he is, what he's doing, what he has done, and what he will do. Today, we're going to look at what What does it look like to worship the Lord, to respond to him when we don't like what he is doing or what he has done? When he's failed to meet our expectation. We're going to do that by looking at Psalm 23. So if you will, read along with me. Here's what it says It tells us that Psalm 23 is a psalm of David. It begins like this The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's about 115 words. I would say that they're some of Psalms' most famous words, even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death. Those are some of Psalms' most popular words. Here's what they teach us about worshiping the Lord when our expectations go unmet or when we make them heavy upon the Lord. They teach us this, that when our expectations are heavy or they go unmet, we worship by trusting and hoping in our shepherd king. There's a commentator named Gerald Wilson who describes Psalm 23 like this. He says, At its heart, Psalm 23 is an expression of confidence in God upon whom the psalmist expresses absolute dependence. Given that Psalm 23 is such a popular passage of scripture, it's easy for us to to approach it and think to ourselves, I already know what that means. I've already heard a sermon about that. I've already read a book about that. So I'm going to think about the Royals and hope that they're going to beat the Red Sox and I'm going to let Tim talk, and then I'll go home. I hope that we can step back a little bit. I just want us to take a look at Psalm 23, because there's something about it that I think is particularly uh, descriptive for us. I think it's particularly helpful. And it's all about the way God is described in Psalm 23. There are two metaphors that run throughout Psalm 23. The first one takes place in the first four verses. The second one takes place in verses 5 and 6. Verses 1 through 4 describe God as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, David says. It describes him as leading David or sheep toward green pastures or quiet waters. It talks about him leading sheep through a valley of shadow of death. And then verses five and six talk about God as this kind of king who is hosting someone. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David writes these two metaphors in a way that strikes us so particularly poignantly because he was both of those things at one time in his life. For a season of David's life, he was a shepherd. So he can talk very clearly about what it's like to be a shepherd. For a season of his life, he was a king. So he can talk very clearly about what it's like to be king. He knows both of those things. In fact, I'll just, I want to give you just a real quick picture of where we see both of those things in David's life. In 1 Samuel 16, if you're taking notes, you can just jot that down. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel shows up to David's father's house. David's father's name is Jesse. He shows up there. To anoint the next king. And all of David's brothers begin parading in front of Samuel. And Samuel says, nope, that's not him. That's not him. That's not him. That's not him. And finally, he asks the question, are all of your sons here? And he, that's Jesse, said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent, and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, anoint him, for this is he. He was keeping the sheep. He was a shepherd. A little while later, in fact, it's just one chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17. David has what is his most kind of popular story. It's where he slays Goliath. And after pronouncing that he has the ability to take down this giant, he has a conversation with Saul, the king. And Saul says, you don't have any chance of taking down this giant. You are but a child a youth, and this man, Goliath, has been a fighter, a warrior, since his youth. And David responds this way, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David can look back very clearly on what it was like to be a shepherd. And he understands that while he was shepherd, his role included three things. Providing, planning, and protecting his flock. That was his role. But he can also speak very clearly about what it's like to be king. If you were to flip over to just 2 Samuel chapter 5, you see where David is anointed. All the tribes come together and they say, Behold, We are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, and you shall be king over us. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them and before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. He knows what it's like to be king. He understands that his role as king is that as long as he gives, or his presence is consistent, he gives peace to his people. That that's his role, to bring peace by his consistent presence. And so David sits down at some point in his life, and there's some debate about what that was. And he writes this psalm about trusting and hoping in the Lord. And he uses these two metaphors, shepherd and a king. And here's what's so powerful about it is that David flips both of those roles over. He knew what it was like to wander around out in the wilderness with a flock of sheep, a flock of sheep who were incapable of providing for themselves, who are incapable of planning their route from field to field throughout the year so that they always had food, who were incapable of protecting themselves from lions or bears. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I am incapable of providing for myself. I am incapable of planning out the entirety of my life. I am incapable of protecting myself. You see, the power of Psalm 23 resides in the word, my. It's possible that if you're sitting here and you've ever been through something difficult in your life, someone has read to you, talked to you about, quoted some piece of Psalm 23 as a means of comfort and peace. And it certainly can provide that but it only provides that if the my is true in your life. Otherwise, it's just words on a page. If you can't say to yourself, the Lord is my shepherd, then what does it matter that he has the ability to provide and plan and protect or that he can bring peace by his presence? The power of Psalm 23 is wrapped up in that one two-letter word, my. The Lord is my shepherd the peace-bringing power of this psalm is available to those who can honestly make that sort of assessment about themselves. There's a temptation or tendency to only speak about God in general terms, that He is the shepherd, that He is the creator, the king, and to remove that word, my, from the equation. One of the beautiful things about God is, is that He is this universal, general creator provider, protector, but he's also at the same time intimately personal in his providing and protecting, in his provision and protection and planning. And if we're going to step fully into some of these profound statements that David makes in Psalm 23, we've got to start with the question, is the Lord my shepherd? That's something that everybody needs to ask themselves. Have I made the Lord my shepherd, my king? Have I stepped into a relationship with Him thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? And if not, I encourage you to start there. If you have, here are some of the things that Psalm 23 points out to us. It points out that we can trust the Lord because God is my provider. Look at what David says in verse 2. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. In sheep terms, that's everything a sheep would ever need. Some green grass and a little bit to drink. David says, he provides for me everything that I need. That's quite a statement from a man who lived as tumultuous a life as David did. You can take a quick look through 1 and 2 Samuel and see that David's life was anything but calm waters. He spent a significant chunk of his life running away from a man that was trying to kill him out in the desert. And then he had to sustain himself in the midst of a coup attempt while he was king. And and the coup was led by his son, He wanted to overthrow him. His life is full of all kinds of other uh, tumultuous incidents. And yet David says, my shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures, still waters. He trusts. He trusts. At the end of verse 1, he makes maybe the most profound statement of, I shall not want. That's not about not desiring things. It's about, I shall not want for anything. I'll have everything that I need. Imagine how your life would be different if you looked at your life and said, I don't want. I have everything that I need. Not in a materialistic sense. We all know what it's like to just want more possessions or stuff or a bigger house, whatever the case might be. But imagine if you looked at your life and you were able to say honestly, I don't have need. I don't need that promotion that I thought I needed. I don't need that image of a perfect family that someone else presents to me. I don't need to get into a better school. I don't have need for those things because I know that the field that the Lord is having me lay down in is the greenest one available. I know that the stream that he's having me drink from is a quiet and still one, and I don't want. I shall not want. That's ultimate trust, regardless of expectation. You may think that life is supposed to play itself out in a particular way, but to be able to come to the Lord and say, you are my provider, I shall not want. That's part of what it looks like to trust the Lord. The second piece is this. You can see it in verse 3. It's that God is my planner. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. When we see that word Uh, righteousness. We have a certain thing we think of in the Bible. We think of not sinning. We think of God as righteous and holy and Jesus was righteous. This literally means he leads me in the right path, the correct way. He takes me on the right path. That's what David is saying here. David's making an expression of trust in not only the ultimate location that God may lead him, but also the path required to get there. The same grandparents that had the timeshare in Cancun lived in a little tiny town in southwest Colorado called Kuchara. It was normal practice for me uh, all the way through middle school and high school that every summer, usually with a friend, uh, I would load up in my parents' minivan here in Liberty, Missouri and we would drive to Colby, Kansas. And when we got to Colby, Kansas, my grandparents would have come from Kuchara and met us there and we would swap vehicles and get in with them and finish out the rest of the drive. What was also standard practice is that we would get about 10, 15, 20 minutes down the road, and my grandpa would take a turn that was totally unnecessary. And my grandma, in the passenger seat next to him, would say, Dale, where are you going? And my grandpa would always say the same thing. Jane, home. Home. It's just that we never took the same route. If you were to get out a map, you would think that there is one route from Colby, Kansas to Kachara, Colorado. My grandfather was convinced there were infinite routes, and they all needed to be explored. Because why would you ever want to look at the same thing on a drive twice? And so we always took a different route. And after a couple of years, I got to the point where I understood we're going to get to their house in southwestern Colorado. Now, we may get lost, which we regularly did. Or we may get stuck on like a two-lane road behind a tractor in the middle of Kansas that's going 10 miles an hour for 40 miles. That could happen as well. My grandma had reason to ask questions, but we always ended up in the right spot. I learned to just take that with a grain of salt. I have no idea what route we're going to take, but we're going to end up at their house in Kachara, Colorado. It's that kind of confidence that David has in the Lord. The path may not be the one that I think it should be, but you lead me on the right path path. It may be smooth and easy and everything go great, or it may be difficult and challenging, but it is the right one. God, I can trust you. I can trust you. You're my planner. The last piece we see in verse 4, that God is my protector. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. David never set out, it was never his goal to lead his sheep into the presence of danger, but sometimes it happened. He explained that to Saul when he was talking about killing Goliath. Sometimes while we were in the green pasture or sometimes while we were along the right path, a lion or a bear came and it grabbed one of my sheep and I chased down that lion or bear and I killed it. I was its protector. It was never my intent to have a a sheep get taken away by a predator, but sometimes it happened. The same is true for us. God does not ever lead you into evil. That's not who he is. That's not how he functions. But sometimes, on the way, when we're on the right path, or while we're in the green pasture, or drinking from the nice still waters, we bump into evil. Even the most faithful follower of Christ is subject to the same afflictions that all of mankind is subject to. Sin is ever-present in the world around us. And at times, it makes life incredibly, incredibly difficult for us. God does not lead us into evil, but its reality is present. And when we bump into those, we can trust that God is our protector. We can trust that He's our protector. There's a second piece of this that's important to also note, and and that's this. Oftentimes, our own uh, sinful action leads us into unpleasant circumstances or consequences. And we're kind of quick in those to point the finger at God and say, how did I get here? Why did you do this to me? The reality is that you did that to yourself. We did that to ourselves. I did that to myself. It's not God's fault. I got off the right path and onto the wrong one, and I found myself in a poor place. The beauty of the gospel is that even in that moment, God, the shepherd, is running after me in order to deliver me from the mouth of the lion or the bear and get me back onto the right path. That's who he is. That's how he operates. He is our protector. Have you ever seen the average toddler walk into a new place that they're unfamiliar with? They're with mom or dad holding their hand and they get into this place that's unfamiliar and they're looking around and they don't really know what's happening. What do they do? They look up at mom and dad, right? Are you here? Are you with me? Will you protect me? Will you stay with me? And when they've got that sort of confidence, then they're free to go and explore. Some of you are like, my child just runs into everything without looking at me ever once. Your child is exceptional, I think. That's what David says his trust comes from. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We can trust in the Lord as our protector because he is always with us. He's always there. All of these things are a matter of trust, trusting in the Lord. And when we fail to trust in one of these places, we do what sheep do. And David knew this all too well as well. They wander. They just wander away. I think oftentimes our greatest sin struggle is thinking that God is holding out on us, that there's a greener pasture somewhere else, and God refuses to let me go there. And so I will try to go there on my own, away from the right path, away from what the Lord has for me. We don't trust, and so we wander away on our own. And thankfully, even in those moments, God is still provider, planner, and protector. He's always those things. Sometimes we think that there's this shadowy valley, a valley of the shadow of death that we don't need to cross. And the Lord leads us into one of those. And we say to ourselves, no, this is not fair. This is not what I expected. This is not what I thought you would do. I don't think I should have to go here. And so we try to strike out and do our own thing. And again, we get off the right path. We get out of the right pasture. And there's God chasing behind us and grabbing the bear by the beard, as David described, and striking it down in order to bring us back. It's an issue of trust. While we were preparing the service for this weekend, Brian pointed out a study note that was in his NLT study Bible that says this, Rebelling against the shepherd's leading is actually rebelling against our own best interests. We must remember this the next time we are tempted to go our own way rather than the shepherd's way. When our expectations on God are heavy or they go unmet, we worship by trusting. We also worship by hoping in our shepherd king. Verses 5 and 6 are all about the hope side of that. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David has hope in the eternal peace of dwelling in God's presence. The greatest power for trust and hope in the life of a believer is the knowledge of eternity in the presence of God. David understands that the green pasture of his life, the quiet stream, the right path, be it hard or easy, the shadowy valley, that those are all temporary places. That they may feel real and heavy and difficult and challenging in the moment, but they're temporary. And that eternity is going to be spent in the Lord's presence. And that gives him great hope, and it should for us as well. It should give us hope in the future, and it should also give us hope in the present. His goodness and mercy are with you now. They will be with you for eternity if the Lord is your shepherd. I want to make one final point as we close, and it's what we've done throughout the series. We've got to see Jesus in the midst of these psalms. We need to understand that Jesus is our perfect shepherd king. In fact, he describes himself as such. In John 10, he describes himself as the good shepherd. In Revelation 17, he's described as the lamb who is the king of kings. He is both of these, and we can place our trust and our hope in Him fully. We can depend on Him completely. So what's the application of this this morning? What do we do with it? I want to give you two things as we close. The first is that I think we need to adjust our expectations. The Bible makes a few promises about what the life of a believer is going to be like. You can guarantee, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that God is going to use your life to mold you into the image of Jesus. To prepare you for eternity with him. And to make his glory known. You can, you can bank on those three things. That does not include some of the things that we expect God to do for us. Like bless us monetarily. Function on our timeline. Give us the things we want when we want them. He may not do those things, but if our expectation of what God has promised us is correct, then no matter what happens to us in life, we can say, you know what, God, I do trust that you are providing, planning, and protecting me. I do trust that this thing is meant to mold me into the image of Jesus Christ, or this valley that you've got me walking through is exactly what I need to prepare me for eternity, or this field that you've got me laying down in this season of life is exactly where you want me to make disciples. It's when we expect something extra from God that he's never promised us that we end up frustrated and disappointed with him. And we point the finger at him and say, you don't know what you're doing. To which he looks back at us and says, I know exactly what I'm doing. You just don't trust me. And when we fail to trust, my second application point, my second thing to do with this sermon would be, I would challenge you to memorize Psalm 23. Like I said, it's about 115 words. And when you get into a moment where the expectations you've placed on the Lord are heavy or they go unmet, go ahead and hit your knees in prayer. Because one of the most powerful things you can do is pray scripture. And if in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of your frustration, you began praying Psalm 23, it would reorient you to worshiping the Lord by trusting and hoping. It would recenter your life on the reality that God is your provider protector, and planner, and that ultimate peace is available through His presence for all of eternity. It would recenter you. So what I want to do this morning is that I want to close our service together by simply praying Psalm 23. If you're someone who's in the midst of something in life that seems unfair, unnecessary, unwanted, or if you're in the middle of something that seems wonderful and fantastic, understand that both of those are fleeting, That ultimate peace is going to be spent in the eternal presence of God. But that temporarily, here on earth, we can trust in His planning and providing and protecting. Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies and anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, would you teach our hearts to trust you Would you teach our hearts to hope in the peace of your eternal presence? God, would you teach us to depend upon you fully and to hope in you completely? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.